tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre, and we're back after a two-week hiatus, uh, just in time for episode 20 to recap some big performances in both Shanghai and Linz uh, that showcase some names we will likely be hearing, I think, for many years ahead, Mike. That's right. We're back to discuss big wins from 15-year-old Coco Goff and 23-year-old Daniil Medvedev. And here to help us this week is a returning guest, tennis host and writer, Blair Henley. You can find her on Twitter, at Blair Henley. And uh, Blair, thanks for joining us yet again. Great to be back, guys. We uh, especially appreciate you taking the time out this week because uh, you're on vacation, as you mentioned to Ben and I earlier. (laughs) And it just speaks, I think, to the passion you have for the sport, that you're on a vacation without your kids, and yet you're still willing to take the time to talk some tennis. Uh, that is true. Well, you know, I kind of, my, my season ends for the most part after the U.S. Open, so I kind of miss being kind of in the midst of all the tennis talk, so this is actually fun for me. Is it ever possible for you to fully break away from talking about tennis in life, whether you're working or not? Well, I feel like sometimes I have two lives because my friends at home have no clue what I do. They don't know anything (laughs) about tennis. So I actually look forward to talking to people who know about tennis because in my normal everyday life, people are like, wait, what what is it that you do again? (laughs) So, no, this is great. So if you're uh, sort of winding down then post-U.S. Open, what, what is it about this time of the tennis season that excites you the most? I just think there are a lot of kind of lingering storylines. I'm I'm interested to see kind of how the season ends. I have been interested to see the resurgence of Sasha Zverev. Hopefully that will continue. I'm interested to see how Bianca Andrescu and Daniil Medvedev do at their respective finals. Davis Cup is going to be interesting to see how that goes. So I think there are enough storylines that that can keep the interest, the, the sleeplessness for those who are covering it, uh, who, who are covering the Asian swing. That's, that is the challenge, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Blair, we, we've kind of spoken uh, on this podcast about how, how the tennis schedule is so incredibly long, essentially almost 11 months out of the year. Uh, obviously kind of seeking out those storylines is important, I think, to maybe stay engaged in the late months of the tennis season because Really, tennis and golf are kind of like no other sport in in that they really last the entire length of the year. It, yeah, it really does. It's it's funny because, you know, I grew up with friends who played soccer and basketball and, you know, football and baseball, all sports that have off seasons. And I always, you know, even in college, people would say, oh, well, when's your off season? <laughs> like, well, <laughs> we don't really have one of those. Uh, and so really, that's that's consistent across all levels of the sport. At the junior level, you're playing all year long. At college level, you have the individual uh, stuff in the fall, and then you have the team uh, swing in the spring. So it really doesn't matter what level of tennis you're playing. You are playing all year long. It's really great when there's a story that comes along that sort of captivates uh, our attention, especially here in North America. And if we look back this past week, obviously one of the most incredible stories was of uh, Coco Goff, who captured her first WTA title in Linz, Austria. Uh, What made that victory even more incredible was the fact that she had lost in the second round of qualies before getting back into the main draw as a lucky loser, making it all the way to the finals where she beat Yelena Ostapenko in three sets. Uh, What impresses you most about this young American who has now shot up hundreds of ranking spots into the top 100? Uh, Is there any one thing in particular that kind of stands out? 
Well, if I could, I want to rewind back to February. Early February, I was in Midland, Michigan. The tournament is there's an ITF tournament there. It's fantastic. The Dow Tennis Classic. And I covered that tournament for the first time this year, and Coco played. And I just walked right up to her and her father and said, hi, guys, I'm Blair. Great to meet you. We would love to do a sit-down interview with you for the tournament. Would you be up for that? And we're figuring it out. Yeah, maybe after this practice, that would work. Sure. She sat down with us for, I mean, it was close to 15 minutes, and it just makes me chuckle. She was ranked 684 in the world at the time. I went back and looked, and she's now ranked 71. And I don't think anyone is walking right up to Coco and or her team <laughs> and <laughs> saying, hey, mind if we do a, <laughs> mind if we do a sit down? Um, but even then, uh, to answer your question, just incredible. She was 14 at the time, incredibly poised. We've, we've talked about how solid she is between the ears. She's also physically mature. I mean, I, I am not an imposing figure, but she dwarfed me. Uh, so, so physically, she is, seems strong and developed and really comfortable on the court. So she has that maturity both mentally and physically. I love the relationship she has with both of her parents. My favorite thing is to watch her mom in the stands, but watching her father coach her on the changeovers um, it is really been interesting because I think as tennis fans, we are wary, as, as you might imagine, when you see the parents as coaches, uh, because obviously that has, that has not always worked out uh, to be the best for the player in tennis history. But I think they seem to have a really fantastic relationship. It's very calm. It's very level. And that is a great sign. Uh, and in addition to that, I mean, there are so many positives, but I love the fact that she is A, playing doubles, and B, she and Katie McNally have done so incredibly well together. That was obviously her first WTA title was was doubles this summer in Washington, D.C. The best doubles partners I have ever played with have had, the only way I can describe it is like a really good tennis feel, just a feel for the game. The really great doubles players, it's almost like they can predict where the ball is going or they can fashion their shots in order to make the opponent hit it where they want it. And so the fact that she is having such success in doubles, to me, even drives home the fact that she has a good tennis IQ that I think is going to serve her really well. So, so many positives uh, when you look at Coco Goff's game. Hey, you just brought up uh, something I was, I was going to touch on, and you mentioned her tennis IQ, which is, is something that uh, I think it certainly impresses me the most. Obviously, you mentioned she's mature physically, uh, but I was looking at some stats uh, just in that final beating Yelena Ostapenko in the three sets uh, that Goff's average shot speed was actually 20 miles per hour less than Ostapenko, and we know Ostapenko is this huge sort of power player, but it seemed like Goff was kind of outwitting her on the tennis court, you know, changing the pace and rhythm with slice and and drawing some errors and then she can also use her speed and athleticism how rare is it for a player to be able to do that and do it at at the age of 15 that's what I find the most impressive we definitely haven't seen that certainly for a long time as the game has kind of shifted to where players are maturing in their mid to late 20s so it's such a pleasant surprise I, you know, I think the concern is there. Anybody who who is in the sport maybe has that concern in the back of their mind that, you know, how how is she going to handle the increasing attention and scrutiny? So far, so good. It seems to be <laughs> it seems to be going great for her. But 
uh, I think she posted, I think it was on Instagram. She maybe went on Instagram live after she won and just kind of said, you know, I got so many negative messages um, as I started to do more and more things on the tennis court saying, you know, this will never, this, you're, you're a, a one shot wonder kind of thing. And those, I mean, we all, it, back when Jennifer Capriati was breaking through at 14, she didn't even have that aspect of things to worry about. So, you know, you just kind of hope that while she has that maturity on the court, that the stuff off the court doesn't affect her negatively going forward. Yeah, that ties into exactly what I'm looking at here is the list of the uh, all-time youngest female tournament winners on the WTA Tour. And it's an interesting mix because you've got some names, some iconic names like Monica Seles and Gabriella Sabatini, who won their first at just a, a few months younger than Coco. And their careers obviously panned out so well on the tennis court. But then you've got others like the Capriotis, although she did find success later in her career. But Nicole Vitezova, Mirjana Lucic. And I'm just curious, what, what are the challenges you think for Goff and her team, her family, that they have ahead of themselves as she moves forward in her young career after this initial success this year? Sure. Well, I know there's been a lot of talk about the WTA's age eligibility rule. I personally think it was put in place for a reason. There, I believe there were a lot of people brought in as consultants as the WTA decided to go ahead with something like that. And I think it's a good thing. So between her 14th, or sorry, 15th and 16th birthday, she can play 10 events. And then between the 16th and 17th, she can play 12 events, I believe. And then that does not include if she were to make the WTA finals or play Fed Cup. I think those things help to not be in the public eye week in and week out. And some people say, well, she's ready. She's, she's mature enough to go for it. And I don't know. I, I, have you guys heard, maybe you guys know, what has Coco said about the eligibility rule? I mean, I know she wants to play, but has, has their camp come out and said, yes, we want, you know, we, we'd love to have this changed? I have not. Uh, I, I don't think she's stated that at, at all, though. I, I don't I, I don't know yeah. that she's really offered up, a, yeah, an opinion necessarily one way or the other on the rule. Yeah, and I, I so my opinion is I think it's a good thing. Uh, I, I think to not be in the public eye every single week uh, at this age. I think she has plenty of time to reach her potential. And I think not necessarily burning it, burning it at both ends right now. I think that is, is a great thing. So her family seems so down to earth and as does Coco. And so you have to hope that uh, her family is helping her stay grounded. Team eight is, is helping her stay grounded uh, as well. Obviously that, whole business side of things is brand new to all of them and that's where great management is really really important when you have a talent like Coco so again it's all about the team tennis can be so insular and those people have to be really great about being supportive uh (laughs) being realistic and and all of the things that go into uh you know just having a balanced headspace one week after the next and over here in Canada, we, of course, sort of have our, our own version of this. Obviously, Bianca Andreescu is 19 years old. Uh, but, you know, less less than a year ago, she was someone outside of the top 200 and playing ITF events. And uh, I, I mean, now she sort of maybe has the weight 
weight of the world on her shoulders in terms of the success she's produced uh, this season, not only uh, winning Indian Wells, but of course winning Rogers Cup and now the U.S. Open. Um, I'm not sure if there's been a fear of Bianca maybe being a one-hit wonder or, or fizzling out, but obviously there's changing expectations in, in tennis when you produce some fantastic results. We saw it with Naomi Osaka um, winning a pair of slams, and then she kind of struggled with some pressure for a good half of this year. Uh, I, I wonder yeah. from watching Bianca how you think she'll maybe manage these ex- expectations. Obviously, there's not much tennis left in 2019, but uh, everybody's going to be gunning for her in 2020. I am not super worried about Bianca being able to handle the expectations. That has been, it's, in particular on the women's side in the past several years, you've had players who have won their first slam and really struggled with the expectations after that. She seems to love it, embrace it. She, I think it was maybe after she lost to uh, uh, Naomi just a few weeks ago. And she said, you know, I hope this doesn't come off as cocky, but I kind of forgot what it feels like to lose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she, but she has that kind of unapologetic, yeah, I'm really good at what I do. And so there's, there is maybe that little bit of extra confidence or cockiness that I feel like is going to sustain her. You know, listen, you're not going to play your best every week. Most players are going to lose once a week on tour. But I think that that extra added, uh, whatever you want to call it, confidence, cockiness, kind of the way she carries herself, I think that is going to sustain her even when, you know, maybe things don't feel good for a few weeks in a row. If we look at the uh, the other end of the age spectrum of women's tennis right now, we saw a comeback this past week that perhaps went a little bit unnoticed as 31-year-old Tatiana Golovin uh, returned to play a competitive match for the first time in, it's incredible, over 11 years. Uh, while she lost yeah. 6-3, 6-1 to a player ranked in the top 150 in the rankings, it's pretty remarkable to even try to return to playing after so much time away from the sport. I mean, for those of us who are over 30, and we don't have to reveal our exact ages here, of course, but <laughs> we, we know it isn't easy, even at the best of times, if you've been playing regularly. So what do you make of her quest to get back to playing professional tennis after this incredibly long layoff? I'm amazed. Well, let's if we can back up to midsummer. There, at one point, they were looking for an extra MC for the U.S. Open. They weren't quite what they were weren't quite sure what they were going to be doing in terms of the staffing. And her name—I don't know if they had ever actually reached out to her, but she was so entrenched in the tennis media world that her name was actually thrown around as a possible U.S. Open MC. And then maybe two days after the U.S. Open ended. She announces she's making a, a comeback. And first of all, when I Googled her age mm-hmm. and saw she was only 31 years old, I was like, <laughs> no way, because she, she again, talk about young players, players having success at a young age. She has been around for a long time. Uh, and I think the fact that she's only 31 is actually a huge plus. Uh, that's, you know, a lot of players are playing their best tennis at 31. And so I think it, as long as her back is healthy, and I believe it was a back injury that really pushed her out of the sport uh, to begin with 11 years ago. Uh, but again, her age, I think, is going to work for her. 31 is, is still in for a lot of tennis players. So I, I'm fascinated by it and more power to her. I think it's great. It's, it's really unfortunate when players can't end their careers on their own terms. Uh, and if, you know, you want to give it one more shot and you have the means to do it, why not? And we'll see uh, Kim Kleister's also make that return, which will be, I know, 
fascinating to see something we've discussed. Uh, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. Our guest this week is Blair Henley. And let's move over to the men's side. You've already mentioned uh, Daniil Medvedev, and he's certainly making a strong case to become maybe the first non-big three slam winner we've seen in over three years uh, since Wimbledon. He's uh, 29 and three. He now has five top 10 wins. And uh, if just to do the full recap, he was at the finals of Washington, losing to Kyrgios, then played a final in Montreal, won Cincinnati, was in the U.S. Open final, picked up right where he left off. He won St. Petersburg, and now he's a Masters 1000 winner in Shanghai. Um, outside of that big three, is is he surely the most likely right now to be that breakthrough player and, and win a major maybe in 2020? It certainly seems like it. I loved the quotes. Uh, it may have been after he, I guess, yeah, it must have been just after his, his latest title when he kind of said, listen, I don't really celebrate when I win. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of routine. I'm like, this, this is my job, and bam, I get it done. <laughs> and I think that the fact that he just feels like this is routine and he should be winning, I think that says more about his mindset maybe than than anything else. I am a huge fan. I love that he has kind of an unconventional style of play. He is thoughtful on the court and off the court. Certainly doesn't mean he's he's perfect. He he has a ways to grow and he's admitted that. He's like, listen, I, you know, I'm still learning, I'm still growing, uh, and I'm happy to be along for the ride there because he is really a fascinating player to watch for me. Yeah, and uh, he's he's been absolutely fascinating. Well, for, for everybody but uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, I don't want to bring this up because I found it interesting <laughs> that uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, we should give him credit for a, a major win over Novak Djokovic in Shanghai. He rallied to beat Novak 3-6, 7-5, then fell to Danil Medvedev in straight sets and afterward uh, was quoted as calling his game boring. And my take on this, I don't know about you, but this felt like maybe some sour grapes. Tsitsipas is now 0-5 against Daniil Medvedev, but I'm yeah. always happy to see maybe a new budding rivalry uh, between a couple players who actually, you know, seem seem to butt heads. I absolutely love it. And I believe uh, somebody translated on, on Twitter uh, Medvedev's response to that, which was somebody informed him that Tsitsipas uh, had said that it's boring to play him or that he thinks this game is boring. And he was surprised and said, hey, listen, we're, we're colleagues. We're never going to be friends. But then goes on to say, uh, kind of poke fun he had alcohol for the first time or that they, you know, supposedly the, the guys at Labor Cup, uh, you know, gave him alcohol or encouraged him to drink. And then he went and reported to his mom that it was disgusting uh, via his blog. So even though Medvedev started off saying, you know what, listen, we're never going to be BFFs, like very, very professional. And then he throws that little bit of shade at the mm-hmm. end. I absolutely love it. Um, and I think kind of those little undercurrents, those little backstories make what happens on the court that much more interesting. Um, and Medvedev, I got to speak to him after he won in Cincinnati. Speaking of alcohol, I just thought this was kind of an interesting anecdote. I asked if he was going to be celebrating uh, after his win in Cincinnati um, And he said, you know, maybe a sip of champagne, but I used to drink a lot. I used to party a lot. And then when I realized that wasn't good for my tennis game, I said, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. So he Mm. just appears in every area of his life to take a very matter-of-fact approach. Like, this is working? Great. 
this isn't working. I'm going to stop doing that. And and you see that even on the court, the way he's able to problem solve. It's just really interesting uh, for me as a tennis fan and as a tennis player. And the fact that, I mean, his game is not the most aesthetically pleasing thing in the world, but the fact that he's able to put the ball exactly where he wants to, it's just, I'm, I'm really amazed uh, by what he's been able to do over the past several months. All, all that talk about alcohol there, Blair, and I can tell you must definitely be on vacation right now. <laughs> That's right. I have, as I will have you guys know, I have a day in today uh, in hopes of speaking more, co- more coherently about uh, what's going on on tour right now. It's going pretty good so far, so we appreciate that. Um, we do want to talk about uh, one of the older guys on tour here, Roger Federer, who uh, fell to Zverev in an interesting match that produced sort of a moment on court we don't often see from Roger Federer, where he's being docked a point. Uh, for those who didn't hear or didn't follow along, Fed was down uh, love three in the final set against uh, Zverev, and he had a point taken away after very casually lobbing a ball uh, outside of the court into the stands. Uh, because he had had a ball abuse warning in the first set, the umpire was within the rules to, uh, to enforce this one. But while it is in the rule book, can we not see some discretion from officials at moments like this, especially with a player like Federer, who is certainly not known for pushing the envelope on the court? Right. Yeah, I feel like this was a rare instance where being Roger Federer did not necessarily work in Roger Federer's favor. Mm. I think Nacho, Nacho Forcadell is was the chair umpire in that match. Uh, lovely. Uh, that's been one of the interesting side effects of my job as I've gotten to know a lot of the officials. I've seen a lot of what they do behind the scenes, on the court, seen some of those unusual scenarios play out. Let me just say, I don't know how they do it. I could never do it, uh, nor would I want to try. I, I have so much respect for what they do, but I think in this case, maybe in Nacho Forcadell's mind, he's thinking, okay, technically, by the very letter of the law, this could have been ball abuse, the ball. I, you, it was tough to see where the ball actually bounced. It may have gone outside of the court. He said from the chair, we could have lost the ball. <laughs> it was an interesting was, banter back think, and forth afterwards, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. So I think maybe in his mind, he's thinking, I can't have it be perceived that I'm being soft on Roger Federer because it's Roger Federer. And so I think perhaps he overcorrected in in the other direction. Uh, But Richard Ings, actually, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's a former official uh, and worked as a chair umpire for many, many years. Uh, but he, he tweeted after that happened. He was like, yeah, in no, in no world is that a, a code violation. So again, maybe, maybe Nacho for Goodell was just overcorrecting a bit. Um, maybe he just started to say it and then realized there is no turning back after that point. I don't know. It was very unusual to see, but my favorite quote that came out of that scenario was, and I don't know, I don't know if it was the changeover immediately afterward, but Roger started to engage with him again. And Nacho said, what? Like, what are you talking about? And Roger said, what do you think? What are we talking about here? Butterflies? (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was so fantastic. I don't know, just because I imagine that you couldn't actually see Roger in the frame, but I thought that uh, that quote was great. What are we talking about here? Butterflies? Of course I'm talking about the ball that I hit out. So uh, 
unusual to see. Who knows how that match would have ended if that hadn't happened. Zverev seemed to be in control there. But, uh, but yeah, it gave us a very weird moment on court for sure. Yeah, it certainly did. And Federer's frustrations actually seemed to carry over a little bit in his post-match uh, press conference actually in Shanghai, which I was surprised to see. Uh, right. Normally so curt uh, and was very dismissive of a, a question actually about the ball penalty uh, was really not having it. So that was uh, interesting to see. You could tell uh, Roger Federer uh, was quite, quite annoyed. Obviously a big win for Sasha Zverev who reached the finals in, in Shanghai. And we were really throughout the season kind of documenting his struggles uh, since he, he did have a trying year, but suddenly he seems to be finding form again, has won seven of his last nine matches. And if we look back to this kind of same point last year, he uh, eventually won the end of year finals. So obviously mm-hmm. Sasha Zverev is still such a young electric player and kind of became a bit of a forgotten name as a contender. And I'm wondering if he can maybe parlay this form into someone who's again, maybe, or, eventually a Grand Slam contender in the next couple of years because he has the talent. I, I really think for Sasha Zverev, it is only a matter of time. And I, I felt really bad for him actually this year having to deal with the the legal issues with his agent at the time, uh, their split. I think that was a really unfortunate thing for a player that young to have to deal with. I mean, he pretty much said, listen, he's fielding, he's fielding all the media requests and, and the sponsor uh, engagements and things like that. He was doing a lot of that earlier this year before he signed with the uh, teammate. So I, I really felt for him because, gosh, it's hard enough to go week in and week out playing on tour. And then when you have those kinds of distractions off the court, it's really difficult. Uh, but I liked what he said in his finalist. He's, he is a great speech giver, whether he loses the final or wins the final. He he always really does a great job. And I liked what he said to his team. is like, listen, we're going to be back hoisting the winner's trophy again soon. So he has total faith that his game is still there. It was just a matter of kind of everything being having his ducks in a row, maybe off the court and just getting a little bit of that confidence back. And who knows, maybe that's what Labor Cup and then Shanghai could have done for him. Speaking of uh, post-match interviews, the last time we spoke with you, Blair, we discussed how you were partly responsible for launching Dennis Shapovalov's (laughs) rap career. And you knew we were going to bring this up at some point. So that was my little segue. I love it. Have you talked with Dennis since then? Does he have a follow-up plan? And are you entitled to any of the royalties? Uh, Well, it's funny you ask. I actually had Dennis. It was the first few days. uh, Oh, well, I guess it was after he beat Felix at the U.S. Open with with an absolutely incredible performance, I might add. I think a lot of people thought that that was going to go Felix's way. And Dennis came out of the gates firing. He looked so sharp that night. Uh, but as that was my first funny, and weirdly enough, we hadn't run into each other in a post-match interview since the rap. But as he's walking up to me, he looks up and he said, we're not going to sing a rap tonight, are we? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, nope, we are just asking questions tonight, Dennis. Uh, and he gave me a great interview, as he always does. So he uh, he gave a little nod to our last uh, interaction. <laughs> we did not get any further than that. I still I still worry a little bit that, that, that Dennis does not look back on that with fondness. I hope he does eventually. Um, I don't know that he does today and I you know in the back of my mind I'm always thinking oh gosh I hope he doesn't like hold me responsible for the fact that <laughs> that, that happened um, player, players I think know that they are always uh, within their rights say yeah no I don't think so um, but he was 
as you know, as everyone saw, he was prepared with his wrap specifically for that day. So Dennis was ready. I have no doubt he had planned to do it the whole time. So it sounds, uh, I, hope he, I hope one day he looks back on that with fondness. It, it sounds like he can have a laugh about it. And you guys certainly have a nice rapport, which which helps as well. And as you mentioned, Dennis was looking real good at the start of the U.S. Open and, and certainly course corrected on his season that it kind of struggled in, in the middle. So we're really looking right. forward to, uh, to seeing what he can do in, in 2020. Uh, Blair, we will uh, let you get back to your vacation with your husband. And uh, we appreciate <laughs> both of you uh, allowing and, and uh, facilitating this to happen. Uh, you're definitely one of our uh, favorite guests on the show, and we don't say that every week. So thanks for, for checking in, and uh, we look forward to talking again early uh, next season. It is a pleasure, uh, both of you. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, enjoy the rest of those turkey leftovers. <laughs> They're still going strong here. Thanks for that. Thank you so much. Uh, that was Blair Henley, uh, tennis host, writer. She's also a tennis coach, and we've seen her do such a fantastic job uh, with post-match interviews as well at various tournaments, uh, including Grand Slams, which was where, as you mentioned, Denis Shapovalov's rap career was officially launched. Some people are just made for that on-court uh, hosting duties, you know, like, and not every former player, because Blair used to play tennis too, not every former player is cut out for it, but she's just got the right personality and sense of humor and she gave Canadian Thanksgiving a shout out so that you know gives her extra points in my book yes yes definitely you are listening to Matchpoint Canada I'm Ben Lewis he's Mike McIntyre you can find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can you can find me at Ben Lewis SN590 and you can find Mike at McIntyre Tennis. Uh, before we get to the upcoming news of this week, uh, we do have to pass along a somber note, unfortunately, uh, because former Canadian tennis player Lorne Main uh, did pass away yesterday, that is on the Monday, at the age of 89, and he had a fantastic career, to say the least. Uh, competed in 11 Grand Slam events. Uh, Lorne won the Monte Carlo Masters in 1954. He represented Canada in Davis Cup from 1949 to 1955. He was captain from 1958 to 1961, and he was dominant on the senior tour. He tallied over 40 titles in every age category from 55 to 80 and over, which are the most titles on a senior level from any tennis player in the world, uh, which is just incredible. Uh, He was also honored in the BC Sports Hall of Fame back in 1975, and he was inducted into the Canadian Tennis Hall of Fame uh, back in 1991. And I I know, Mike, uh, you kind of reached out to a few people uh, to get some words on on what Lorne made was like as a person. Yeah, I was speaking with Jennifer Bishop, uh, chair of the board of Tennis Canada. Uh, she tweeted out uh, shortly after his passing, and you could tell that she was affected on a very personal level. And she shared some memories that she had with Lauren Mating, including this one that I thought was really touching. She says, I remember when I was nine years old playing tennis on the East Coast and was feeling intimidated about traveling to Quebec and Ontario to compete. Lauren made me wear a T-shirt that said, I'm going to win in practice every day until I convinced him that I believed it. And I think that just speaks sort of volumes to the the type of man that, that Lauren Main was, not just a champion on the court for Canada, but off the court, obviously instrumental in promoting and developing the sport in in our youngsters as well. And I mean, we talk about the the sport of tennis achieving new heights in 2019, but, you know, we've got to go back a little bit and do our due research and, mm-hmm. and sort of dig up some of those historical results. It's incredible what Lorne Main achieved. And that was back in the day when he was doing this as an amateur, too. Had to have a job, a real job on the side 
And for example, his Monte Carlo Masters win in 1954, which today would have netted, you know, a nice little uh, paycheck uh, to go along with the tournament victory. He said that all he got for that was a handshake and a, and a trophy. So oh, wow. he definitely played in a different era. And those mm-hmm. those players, those amateur players, set the stage for what exists now. And so, you know, the players we have, the Miloshes, the Genies, and, and now the next wave of Dennis, Felix, Bianca, you know, yeah, they've definitely got to give some credit to the players that came before them, like uh, like Lauren Main. I didn't know Lorne myself. I'd never met him. But I did meet Don Fontana, who was another one of those sort of Canadian icons from the 50s and 60s. He passed away about four or five years ago. And I remember him sort of taking me under his wing at my first Rogers Cup. And I just really appreciated that. And it sounds like Lorne Main was the same kind of guy. So mm-hmm. our, uh, our thoughts go out to his family and all those that, that knew him. Definitely a significant loss for uh, the Canadian tennis landscape. Yes, certainly uh, one of the major trailblazers for tennis in this country. We will continue with tennis news and action for the week. Uh, Starting with the WTA side, we have a tournament in Luxembourg. Elise Mertens, Julia Gerges, the top seeds there. Uh, Over in Moscow, we have top seeds Alina Svitolina and Kiki Burtons. In terms of Canadians in action in Moscow, Gabby Dabrowski uh, won a pair of singles qualifying matches, but she lost in the final round to Kirsten Flipkins. But to me, that's some nice progress from Gabby, who uh, does still have a, a keen interest in, in competing on the single side and seeing what she's capable of. I'm pretty excited to see what Gabby, I hope she follows through on it. What she told us earlier this year was that she does want to give singles more of a shot after the Olympic Games in, in 2020, because I think she's got such a different style of game with the serve and volleying and the just the touch at the net and the, the comfortability in doing that, which we don't see all too often, a game that could make a lot of opponents uh, very uncomfortable out on the court. Uh, No shame in losing to Kirsten Flipkins, who was a former top 15 player in singles and a current top 25 player in the doubles world. So uh, I think good for Gabby to get those two singles wins and maybe she'll try and enter a couple more before the season's over um, because uh, she certainly has, I think, some... uh, some abilities there that uh, that are untapped at this point. Yes, certainly. And uh, on the men's side, there is a tournament as well in Moscow. Uh, Daniel Medvedev has withdrawn from the event. Now, I don't know. I haven't seen if they have been able to rejig the draw and uh, name a new number one seed because Karen Hatchinoff was uh, number two prior to that. So I'm not sure if that has officially changed the seeding of the draw, but Medvedev has pulled out of the the event. Of course, he's played in a, an extreme amount of yeah. tennis. Good idea. How many more wins does the guy need this year? Exactly. Uh, Gael Monfils will be the top seed. Davy Goffin is the second seed in uh, Antwerp. Andy, Andy Murray is also playing there and he picked up a win today. And in Stockholm, Fabio Fanini, the first seed, Grigor Dimitrov, uh, uh, your semifinalist from the U.S. Open, the second seed, and Denis Shapovalov playing some tennis. He received a bye, and we know he will be facing Alexi Popperin of Australia in his first match. Braden Schnur also uh, lost his first-round match. He was also competing for Canada. Some other news, and this actually surprised me a little bit based on everything I've been hearing uh, in regards to the ATP Cup, uh, but Hopman Cup is set to apparently return in 2021. Yeah, so it sounds like it's going to take a one-year hiatus. Uh, I thought maybe it was, uh, you know, over and done with, right. which which would have been really unfortunate because it's just such a fun tournament to begin the year with. Not that there's a guarantee in 2021 that it will be in January, but it was always a fun way for pros, male and female, to get together, play some pretty competitive matches. Uh, the international aspect involved as well, country versus country. Some great mixed doubles matches in there, which were really cool to see some of the combinations 
nominations. Uh, Roger Federer and Belinda Bencic were the uh, defending champs from last year. But ITF President David Haggerty made the announcement saying uh, that while it will not be happening in 2020, it will be set to return a year later. Uh, Not sure if that's going to be in Australia or not. But uh, it'll be great to see that event uh, survive, return to uh, the tennis calendar. I don't know how they're going to fit it in with all the ATP Cup, the new Davis Cup and Fed Cup formats and and whatnot. But uh, I'll be anxious to see it because, you know, getting to see Roger Federer face, you know, Serena Williams in mixed doubles this past year. That was pretty cool, if you ask me. Yeah, that's uh, completely unique, of course. That's not something we can really see at any other tennis event. So uh, it will be nice to have that event in 2021. No guarantees of that mixed doubles matchup again, of course. Will they Uh, both still be playing at that point? Right, well, that's true. Uh, Or will they both be traveling to Hopman Cup? We'll see. Uh, I do have some Roger Federer news to pass as well. He has confirmed his intention to play the Olympics in Tokyo. Obviously, that's still, you know, almost a year away if something were to change if an injury were to pop up or whatnot that could lead to a withdrawal but uh, Federer seems very keen to play the Olympics and really if you break down the incredible resume which features over 100 ATP titles and 20 grand slams the only thing really missing from the trophy box is a singles gold medal in the Olympics yeah and I mean something tells me he's going to be quite okay if he doesn't add that to his uh, you know trophy display case but uh, he's got the silver uh, medal in singles, the gold medal in doubles that he won, uh, surprisingly, with Stan Wawrinka uh, back in, I want to say, 2008. And uh, I-, I would have been shocked if he wasn't going to play the Olympics in 2020. I know he had only announced his schedule up until Wimbledon, as he usually sort of cautiously does like a half year at a time. Mm-hmm. But why wouldn't you go? He's also sponsored by a-, a Japanese clothing company, which I think is sort of why the, the announcement dropped this past week while he was uh, over there. And uh, I'm all for watching him try to go and and get that gold medal. It just adds another interesting storyline to a pretty cool international competition that we only get to see every four years. Yes, certainly. And uh, we do have an exciting tournament a couple weeks away here in the Toronto area. I I know last year when you covered it, we had Bianca Andreescu in the finals of the semifinals. Semifinals. I I mistakenly said finals the last time we chatted about this, so that's my bad. But (laughs) she did make the semifinals last year. Semifinals of the Tevlin Challenger. You probably didn't predict then when you were watching her over at the Aviva Center that she would be hoisting the trophy at the U.S. (laughs) Open. But uh, my, how things uh, change rapidly in tennis. We will have some good Canadian play uh, a couple weeks from now, including the young Layla Annie Fernandez, Francois Abanda. We have to remind ourselves she is still a young tennis player. Uh, she'll be competing as well among some other veteran players too. I was shocked when I looked up the other day that Abanda is only 22 years old because she's one of those names that you feel has been around for, for ages and mm-hmm. it's just that she got started so young. And I mean, she at her career best uh, a couple of years ago in, in the fall was close to cracking the uh, the top 100 and I think that possibility still exists for her but injuries have certainly taken their toll and her ability to stay focused is something that I think many would admit she still needs to work on when she's on the court uh, but she'll be there Leila Annie as you mentioned the uh, junior uh, French Open champ a host of other Canadians I wouldn't be surprised Carol Zhao is on the entry list for uh, qualifying at the Tevlin some other young uh, Canadians like Lane Sleeth and um, I imagine uh, Carson will play Carson Branstein. I just spoke with Carson Branstein today. Actually, it's funny you should mention that. And she was intending on playing some tournaments this fall, but she's got injury issues. And so okay. she will not be there, unfortunately. Uh, another name who doesn't look like is going to be there, but might have done her some good is uh, Jeannie Bouchard, who is still looking for 
her first victory since February of this year. Yes, uh, and we don't really know the rundown of her fall schedule, but uh, I, I think it's best at this point to probably go down, play some ITFs, and get some match wins. I, I think that should be the priority. Maybe the scrutiny here in Toronto and Canada would be a little bit much because if she didn't win it, it would be almost like, you know, more disappointment Perhaps, and, and yeah. criticism. But uh, I think to end the year to try and get, you know, at least one or two victories and, and end on a positive, you know, would probably be a good thing for Jeannie. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um, this is a great little ITF event, though, because, you know, there's very, very little press. It's easy to watch and easy to access, and it kind of goes under everybody's nose and nobody really takes notice. Yeah, Ben, I can count on one hand the members of the media that are going to be there, okay? There's going to be you, me, Tom Tebbett, of course, mm-hmm. and Max Gao, who uh, is usually there <laughs> snapping pictures right. and has been covering that event uh, for quite some time despite his young age. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be very short on media. You can sit right up close, and you never know. Are you going to see someone like an Alexandra Stevenson from last year, former Wimbledon semifinalist? Are you going to see up-and-coming players, uh, you know, Bianca Andreescu, obviously, who was there last year and now is a Grand Slam champ? You just never know. And it's that mix between the older players that are still hanging on, enjoying the sport, the young up-and-coming players that want to get some ranking points and some some cash to help them further their career development. It's a really unique sort of blend, and uh, it's funny. I mean, I attend all sorts of tournaments throughout the year, exhibitions and whatnot, but this one always holds a special place because of its sort of size, and it's like an uncovered, undiscovered gem here in Toronto at the Aviva Center. Yeah, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to that one just two weeks away. As we said, we'll wrap up this episode with another signed ball giveaway. Uh, last week, we were, well, I should say two weeks ago, we uh, gave away a signed ball from uh, Grand Slam two-time, three-time, pardon me, Grand Slam champion Angelique Kerber. Uh, this time, we have Australian Open champion Caroline Wojniacki. We have a signed tennis ball from her, which was signed at Rogers Cup uh, this past summer. Uh, so, what do you think we should have from our listeners this week to get in on the draw? Well, you're putting me on the spot and all the, the turkey <laughs> and whatnot from the weekend is taking its toll. So my ability to think on my feet is compromised here. So I will just say, if you tweet us your favorite Caroline Wozniacki uh, memory or your favorite thing about her game or even just her as a person, because she's uh, one of the nicest uh, players on the tour, very engaging with her fans and with the media. Uh, so tweet us something like that. Retweet our latest episode with your comments and we will enter you for that draw and we'll uh, draw the names next week. Perfect. You can also, here's another thing, you can also leave a rating of our podcast on uh, whichever podcast app you listen to. You can leave a rating. Hopefully it's a nice rating. <laughs> probably if you're already on to episode 20 and have stayed with us, it tells me you probably enjoy the podcast. For the most part, probably. I, yeah, I yeah. would think so. So uh, please feel free to leave a rating as well. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We thank Blair Henley, our guest uh, for this week, and we will talk to you next time. 